0: Join me, Christine Weinbrenner Eirich, for soulful conversations with my community of travelers, exploring the heart, the mind, and the globe. We might all agree that we are missing travel right now. These conversations highlight what tourism really means for the world. Soul of Travel honors the passion and dedication of the people making a positive impact in tourism. In each episode, you'll hear the story of industry professionals and seasoned travelers who know travel is more than a vacation. It is an opportunity for personal awareness and it is a vehicle for change. We are thought leaders, action takers, and heart-centered change makers. This is the Soul of Travel. In this episode of Soul of Travel, I'm speaking with Dr. Emily Thomas, an associate professor in philosophy at Durham University. She obtained her PhD from the University of Cambridge and has published widely on the history of philosophy, especially the topics of space and time. Her most recent book is The Meaning of Travel, Philosophers Abroad. She has spent a lot of time traveling by herself and getting lost around the world. In our conversation, we look at the connection between early travelers and philosophers, as well as her studies on Victorian lady travelers, and how the reception of Mary Wollstonecraft's work can help us understand the marginalization of women in the history of philosophy and in travel. I'll admit... I may have said a few too many likes in this light, passionate, and excited conversation speaking about the things I'm so passionate about. I hope you enjoy that enthusiasm as you join me now for my conversation with Dr. Emily Thomas. Good morning and welcome to Soul of Travel, Voices of Women. This season we're focusing on all of the amazing women in this space of travel and creating a space for conversation. Today I'm really excited to be talking to Dr. Emily Thomas of Durham University and she's also the author of The Meaning of Travel, Philosophers Abroad. And I go into this conversation knowing full well I already wanna spend like six hours talking with you. And so I'm gonna edit and also already hope that strategically I can bring you back to talk about the things that I know we're not gonna talk about today. Um, (laughs) um, And I, uh, in researching and and preparing for this conversation, I I came across the, I guess goal of yours to move philosophy kind of out of academia into more mainstream conversations. And so I'm really excited about, um, that this is a space for that to happen. And, um, also I like the idea of kind of breaking down the idea of philosophy being this unattainable space and the fact that, um, kind of we're all philosophers at heart, right? That we're all seeking the answers of the universe. And so um, as I was preparing, I just love that idea so much. And I, I've kind of seen the, the uh, periphery of that in, in getting to know you. So I'm going to give you just a little bit of time to introduce yourself. And,
1: um, and then we'll just
0: move on from there.
1: Okay, fantastic. Thank you. Yes, I definitely think philosophy should not just be confined to universities and schools. And it really is about asking the big questions, what life is all about, what is goodness, what is time, um, how we should relate to one another in society. And this is stuff that I think we do talk about and think about often. Um, So, yeah, definitely. I think philosophy is actually a really core pursuit for humanity. <laughs> That's a really big statement, but I'm going to stick with it. Um, so I do do philosophy in a university. I'm, uh, I mostly work on history of philosophy, but, um, and I like working on the biggest questions that there are. So particularly stuff like, what is the nature of reality? What are space and time?
0: That's so amazing to me. And I come from it from both sides. Like that seems impossible. And yet why would you spend your time thinking about anything else? <laughs> yes, I agree. And and I immediately am like, oh, I want to read everything about it. Like this just um, was a catalyst to that researcher part of my mind. I have a background in sociology and I actually spent a lot of time helping one of our associate professors with her lit review that I guess, like systematic side of me loved, like, you know, going through and highlighting the words and counting and organizing and structuring. And so when um, I first heard of you, which actually, um, I would love to just shout out, um, I had heard you talk with my friend, Mike Scheibel on his podcast. And um, I, I just was so excited to like, combine like this really kind of like, regimented academic perspective of something that for me has always been like real freeing and loose and like uh, it seems contradictory and yet like when you examine it closer it so goes hand in hand so I loved that about um, connecting with you and your story and your book.
1: I'm really glad to hear that. I think that's brilliant. It is definitely the case that we work on these really big grand ideas but then on a day-to-day basis though you're absolutely right it's about highlighting (laughs) and reading really dull geeky material (laughs) that you then have to structure into literature reviews.
0: (laughs) Yeah I mean it's interesting the process like it it seems and again like it seems unobtainable but when you look at the starting point uh, as something like that like really, if you have the patience, anybody could like start out on that road and, and explore something that's interesting to them and see what else people have already talked about, thought about, and then that like that triggers your own perception. And then we have to give value to our thoughts, which is also really hard to do, right?
1: Yes, definitely. <laughs> Constructing <laughs> arguments and formulating viewpoints. It's difficult stuff.
0: I know that you grew up in a small town that was very picturesque and um, I can really relate to that. I grew up in rural Montana in a very small town that, you know, many travelers go to because of its beauty and um, I definitely did not appreciate it at the time I spent much of my childhood wishing to get out of there. And also to understand just the rest of the world. Like I, I remember being really little and asking my mom why we didn't have culture where I lived. (laughs) And I'm sure she thought that I was crazy. (laughs) What are you even talking about? And interestingly enough, I grew up on an Indian reservation and um, I mean, there was a lot of culture that I just maybe didn't fully understand at the time, but I also like I'm like, I want to see things that are thousands of years old, and I want to understand how that ties into like the beginning of humanity. Like I just constantly was uh, seeking and reaching. and um I eventually worked for this tour company, and the very first tour they asked me to lead, and they go everywhere in the world, they said. We'd love to have you uh, guide on the Montana rail trip. <laughs> and my heart broke. <laughs> I thought I get to literally go where I went to university, where I grew up. We took like a bus right past my grandparents' house. And I, I thought, oh, I can't even believe the injustice of this. And then I um, I had this experience of seeing my home through all of these other people's eyes, and it shifted my perspective in how we observe what is around us. And for you, um, I'm wondering a little bit, um, I know that you had mentioned that when you set out to explore, you kind of didn't want to explore your European backyard. You wanted to get out and see the rest of the world. So if you might just share with us a little bit about where you grew up and what got you out exploring the rest of the world.
1: I can. So I grew up in the Channel Islands, which are absolutely tiny (laughs) Um, I grew up mostly on the island of Guernsey, which is nine miles by seven. (laughs) It's really piddly. You can drive from any point to any point in like 20 minutes maximum. (laughs) very small. It's very beautiful. Um, But I definitely wanted to to get beyond there and and get beyond Europe, actually. Um, I used to think... Um, that countries like the US or Canada were really similar to the UK. Um, I think I would have said that somewhere like Germany or the Netherlands is is more different to the UK than somewhere like the US. And then as soon as I left Europe for the first time, I realised, oh no, I'm so European. <laughs> I'm, I'm so baked into this Uh into the way of living that you take history for granted you know there's 400 year old buildings regularly on the streets that you walk past and there's a there's a kind of way of and um, of conducting government um, in life that all just seems really familiar to me in a way that when you go to a country like the US or Canada um, and it's largely English speaking so there's this illusion of similarity yeah. but then you realize oh no it's actually really different <laughs> like much more so and I realized quite quickly I'm much more interested in seeing places that are different to Europe than seeing other parts of Europe and um, that somehow that experience is more valuable to me, I think. And so I was living in the Netherlands when I wrote the book on philosophy of travel. And it was surprising to me how quickly the Netherlands felt extremely familiar. Like it felt like home within a couple of months. Um, And despite the language difference from there in the UK, um, yeah, I feel like, yeah, terribly European. I can't shake it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't think that is a bad thing at all. And I think it is interesting how we have perceptions. And I think that's the most valuable tool of travel is breaking those down and letting you see the reality of things like we we all receive our information in the package it comes in from media and television and books and stories from our family and through our education and it's never quite right it just can't be because it's just one version of existence and when you set out to see the world, you really get to take it in through your eyes, which carries some of those connotations but then they start to fall off as you realize that, yes, English and English have nothing to do with one another. And that yes, that you know, you're know, you really at home in these places you wouldn't expect to be at home. And um, I felt that uh, one of my first backpacking trips was to Thailand and I expected to feel Really disjointed, and honestly, I just felt really embraced, and like something I'd been seeking for a really long time was given to me and um yeah, really felt at home and then that kind of kept happening and 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 then I realized like it's that aspect of travel that feels comfortable to me, like curiosity and exploring and I don't know if you've had similar experiences where you really expect to feel maybe challenged and then it—it it is always challenging but then always like there's this other side to it
1: yes it, i think i have reached a point with travel where My expectations of not being challenged are so low that then the the feeling of being challenged actually starts to feel really familiar. That you know, when you work out strategies for navigating places where you don't speak the language and and you can't even read the street signs, um, and gradually that that becomes normal. Like that process becomes familiar in a nice way. I think, and I really I really enjoy visiting somewhere and um, and finding out how little I know about a place <laughs> I find that really reassuring and um, being in that state of total ignorance where everything you're learning you're really learning for the first time and um, I, yeah I really enjoy that as a traveler
0: I think that that is actually an interesting parallel that I would see between philosophy and travel right because as a philosopher, you're setting out to answer impossible questions, right? You're always starting from that space of unknown and hoping to get to known. And travel is kind of the same way, right? You're, you are don't know anything and you hope you survive and that you know in the end. So um,
1: I it's think, like, yeah, I yeah like...
0: the experiences of both are really similar. And that's, that's something I love so much in thinking about this was like starting with how could philosophy and travel be so intertwined and um i i'm just curious for you what what helped you to bring those two things together i mean you you love both but what made the connection to write the book about the two together
1: there was no clear impetus it felt like writing the book was something Uh, completely unintentional. I was working on other things, I finished this big project um, and then I kind of had a bit of a a lull in my research um, into incredibly geeky topics about space and time Um, and suddenly, suddenly I was like ah, I wonder what philosophy said about travel. And before I quite knew what I was doing, I began doing lots of research into it and finding what philosophers have said about travel, looking for connections between philosophy and travel. And I wasn't certain I would find anything. Um, But actually, I found lots. Um, And then one of the things that you've mentioned there, this, this unknown that they have in common, they're both fascinated by it. And it's, I think it goes even deeper than wanting to move from the unknown to the known. I think a lot of what philosophy and travel are doing is trying to map out new places and new areas of thought that we didn't even know exists before. So when the explorer um, climbs that last mountain or looks behind that last moon, they don't even know what unknown regions they're going to find there. Um, and it's almost about saying, ah, oh, here's this whole new place that's completely unknown and <laughs> um, someone needs to head into it. And I think philosophers do the same. So when you look at questions like, um what is goodness, what is time. These questions haven't been around forever and someone had to ask them for the first time. And when they asked those questions, they were mapping out a whole new area of unknown thought. And I think because they share this fascination with the unknown, that has led a lot of philosophers to compare their philosophical inquiries to journeys. Um, so you have some really lovely, um passages for example um, in David Hume's Treaties of Human Nature where it, it's a really skeptical work he's questioning everything that people think they know about the world and about halfway through the book he compares himself to a man who's been shipwrecked on rocks and he's looking out to sea wondering whether it's safe for him to put forth into the unknown again and um, so I think yeah, I actually think philosophy and travel are really deeply connected by this theme.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I really felt that curiosity was a, a common thread um, and, uh, and seeking and searching. And also, like, there's this kind of romantic notion around both things, right? Like, there's the romantic notion of philosophy, which you've kind of debunked with all of our highlighting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, true. <laughs> and the romantic notion of travel. And, um, I, I just think that that's kind of what lures people into both spaces and kind of what we, what we seek. And so I, I think that that is really interesting. Um, I I wanna talk a little bit about, in looking at the reviews for the meaning of travel, I loved this thought that said, um, this is the finest kind of travel, not just across continents, but through time, space, and our infinite minds. The journey is the joy. Um, For me, that resonated really strongly because I kind of see travel as something that doesn't only happen when we go somewhere. And so like we can journey in our mind, we can journey in our heart, we can journey within ourselves. And so similar to what you were saying, it's that idea of journey, um, that ties those two things together. And so, um, and also a lot of people, I think uh, we were talking a little before we hopped on here, but we, um, when we're really kind of in this creative space and this curious space, we end up wearing all these hats that go with each curiosity. And then all of a sudden we're sitting here with this pile of things that we're interested in and kind of, I'm guessing, like you were like, hmm, travel, philosophy, feminism, where do women stand in all of this? And you were like, can I make this into something? <laughs> And then this like beautiful thing happens, and um, I, I just love that about people who are open to that. like we're not seeking a label to like to fit into a category we need to fit into. and so then it gives us freedom to create something unique. So I really love that you have all of these things that you're really interested in, and they've become a part of this project. And um for you how, what I mean, as it unfolded, so you're researching you're finding these connections you're starting to realize this is a thing. Uh, where did it go from there? like how did you move forward?
1: actually, the moving forward was the hard part. <laughs> I ended up in this situation where I had lots and lots of material, so i, I you know I found all these connections, I found all these philosophers who had. What I thought were like big, important things to say about travel and um, but it was all a kind of mess <laughs> because no one had really worked on philosophical issues in travel in a systematic way before, and um, there was no obvious guide to how I should like move through them or and um, so I ended up I guess creating a narrative and um, so I think that philosophers got really interested in travel in the 16th century Age of Discovery, um, which makes sense given that I'm working on Western philosophy and that that's when Europeans suddenly began sailing all their ships all over the world and they're bringing home these travel tales and philosophers get caught up in the excitement of travel, just like the rest of Europe is really, you know, they're human beings, they're part of European society. Um, And I think they begin asking these questions, what can travel tell us about the world? And what can philosophy say about travel? What kind of pursuit is this? Um, And so slowly, I began constructing a narrative that running from the 16th century towards the present day, looking at the way that philosophy and travel have kind of met on various issues and then they wander apart for a little while and then they come back together again. So I work in philosophy and uh, there's no reason why you should know this um, but although there have been women philosophers throughout history um, they've largely been ignored um, so on most undergraduate philosophy courses you wouldn't learn about women philosophers prior to the mid-20th century say um, and I certainly had the impression when I was a student that that's just how it was that women entered philosophy maybe like the 1930s and um, and that's when it got going but of course that's not the case at all women philosophers have been around since the pre-socratics in the age of Plato and Aristotle and and that's something that as an academic i've been really sensitive to and of course there are these huge parallels in travel so although women began traveling in great numbers in the 20th century. There've been, you know, centuries of women travelers before that, just not nearly as many of them. (laughs) So really famous ones that people like Mary Kingsley and Isabella Bird, and once I began, I guess because I was looking for the women anyway, (laughs) and you begin thinking, well, are the same mechanisms functioning in travel as in philosophy when it comes to excluding women or not including them in our histories and the answers of course are yes
0: (laughs) yeah that um that was another thing that came up for me as I was um learning more about you and I thought oh my gosh like she has that same nudge that I kept getting I remember being in um middle school probably and we had a report we needed to write on World War I. And like my first thought was, oh, yes, I'm gonna write about women in World War I. And I go to the library ready to find all of these books and this wealth of knowledge on all the great things women did in this time. And, you know, there's the history section and the World War I section. And there's this book that has like four pages on women in World War I. <laughs> and I thought, This can't be right. And then World War II came around the next year and I marched into the library and I'm sure the librarian was just like hiding from me because she knew it was coming. And then we had to write on media and then we were discussing Shakespeare and everything for me was like, where are women in this picture? And so um, for me, your look at where women are in both philosophy and travel was um both like exciting and i also knew it was going to be frustrating for me (laughs) because of, of the the kind of absence of women and not that they weren't there it's just in how their stories were being told and you know that's really how this Voices of Women season started for me is that you know I would sit at a travel conference and think oh I'm so inspired by this one woman and this one woman and then I was pulling back and looking and I'm like "Well, wait that's the only two women who were there and so yes I am inspired by them but where are the rest of the women and you know sometimes they were in the audience with me and especially in the space of adventure travel I would often be surrounded by men and um, not that they weren't all honorable and great and doing great work and really celebrating our successes I just wanted to create a space where we really could share our stories and inspire other people and so um, I really loved how you began to look at that. And and then as I was reading your article that you shared with me um, on on Lady Travelers and I, just the title of it made me so very happy. I can't even express to you. I literally have a bag sitting next to me that says uh, where feminism meets travel <laughs> from Unearth Women magazine. And I just, I started reading this and I was like, don't start to feel that rage don't start to feel that like it's going to happen you're going to start to get angry and i'm like no let's just read it <laughs> um but uh and then the the like tagline that you have in here of the beardiness of travel suffrage and philosophy like i just again i'm like oh, she is my my sister at heart for sure and i can't wait and i don't want to hear what she has to say <laughs> Um, So in this article, which hasn't been published yet, I would love to dive into this, Um, but I really love how it kind of looks at how society treats both uh, women in travel and in philosophy. And then um, this idea that the fact that traveler tales were typically celebrating male explorers. So not that the women weren't there, but they weren't being celebrated and then also really the um conceptualization of travel as masculine and so even if a woman wanted to step into that space she had to step into that space as masculine which obviously parallels so many things in our current world um, which is also why i really love this and then that women who were in travel were also then portrayed as masculine and then that contrast when you found these women were actually feminine (laughs) and how uncomfortable that made people and so um, i would love to just kind of talk through this portion of your research and what you've been finding and also um, when it when it would say that travelers were uh, when they were women travelers they were exceptional and my mind is like exceptional, yay, they're amazing, and it really means they were exceptional in that they were the exception and they were the only ones who could really understand. They were lucky enough to have the mind that could, you know, think philosophically or step into this travel. So. I know I just laid out about a million things for us to talk about, but if you could just kind of unwrap some of that
1: for us. I can, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay, so so in philosophy, um, something that feminist philosophers are quite interested in is the way that ideas can become associated with a gender. So today, for example, we often think of pinkness as associated with girls and maybe blueness associated with baby boys. And these associations happen sort of historically and then they become ingrained in society in various ways. And lots of researchers have argued compellingly, I think, that travel is associated with men if you look at the history of travel if you just google lists of famous travelers or lists of historical explorers they're almost all men are, you know you'll get people like scott of the antarctic and, um, and captain cook sailing around the world um, like it's such a history of men and and philosophy is exactly the same. (laughs) If you ask anyone on the street to name a philosopher, they will almost certainly name a man. Uh, Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Kant, these are exactly um, the names that you're gonna get. And so both philosophy and travel in virtue of their history are associated with men. And what that means is that women who undertake those practices are also seen to be really masculine. Um, So what people have found looking at the history of women travellers is um, that they are literally described as being manly or masculine. Um, So I think um, Mary Kingsley is described as having um, like manly courage (laughs) and a man's strength (laughs) Um, Mary Wollstonecraft, he was a 18th century philosopher and also a travel writer. Um, in reviews of her travel book, a short residence um, in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark, and um, the reviews literally say things like, um, oh, "This lady traveler has a masculine mind." <laughs> um, it, you know, uh, they really praise her, um, yeah, her manly courage for for wandering around these places, and um, and what this does is create the impression that regular women can't do these things. In order to do travel or do philosophy, and um, you have to be exceptional. And really, by exceptional, they mean like a man. Um, so it's only very manly women who will succeed, because <laughs> if you're a feminine woman, of course, <laughs> you just won't be able to. Um, and so that led to these perceptions of these women is being really masculine. And then what you get is people who've read their travel books or their philosophy, when they meet them for the first time, they're suddenly astonished (laughs) that they're meeting these, you know, perhaps sort of uh, very sort of pretty, feminine, petite women. Um, And you have astonishing statements. Um, there was a writer who met Barry Kingsley for the first time. And he talked about how he expected to meet someone sort of broad-shouldered and sturdy and, and instead she's this tiny bird-like woman with a very sweet face <laughs> and, and so this contrast between the way they were portrayed and then the way they were perceived and it leads to various issues and what these women often ended up doing was trying to stress how feminine they really were so with when it comes to, um, especially with lady women explorers, and they pay a lot of attention to what they're wearing in their travel books. And and they want to stress that, yes, I'm traveling and exploring around the world, but I'm not doing it in trousers. I'm I'm doing it in like my full Victorian bustle. (laughs) Um, Of course. (laughs) There's a really great passage in um, one of Kingsley's books about Africa, where she describes how she's wandering intrepid through the jungle, that she falls into a jaguar pit, but happily she's saved from the spikes because she was wearing a really good thick woolen skirt. Um, and of course what she's saying there she's trying to be funny but it's no accident that she's also stressing the fact she's very much wearing feminine women only garb Um, and so you end up with this really strong association between yeah between travel philosophy and these being manly things and then women who are um, entering upon them are also perceived as being manly and that's the only reason that they get away with it.
0: Yeah, I, it's it's so interesting. And again, like I said, like on the edge of infuriating, but I'm trying not to access that in myself. And um, I found it- It's okay, that, okay to be infuriated. <laughs> I think it's an appropriate reaction. I, um, I, I also just thought it was so interesting how then kind of building upon that is where these women then- came back and they really um, rejected these feminist movements and particularly the suffrage movement. And um, I just, I wonder like in part was it only to save face and to create this image or did they really feel this way? But um, I, I I don't know, it just was so interesting. And, and in your article you talk about, you know, them rejecting this suffrage movement but also um, this story of, and I'm going to pronounce her name wrong, uh, Wollstonecraft. Is that how you say it? Yeah.
1: W- Wollstonecraft.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay, I didn't, I didn't, okay. I was like, wow, all of a sudden I'm sure this is going to happen right now, but she was really this leader and a cautionary tale. Like she couldn't just be a leader. She couldn't be this one paving the way um, and that her writing really opened the doors for female travel writers, um, but created a this warning at the same time that um, you, you can only be masculine in one area of your life. Like you can't really um, you, you can't say that you're a traveler and celebrate that you're feminine. Like you, you just can't. So so she kind of created this like um opening and this barrier at the same time which i thought was really interesting and then i also loved that um you mentioned in a short residence that she couldn't avoid being the first person in her story like that the narrative was about her and traditionally this wasn't how travel was was shared and that she was really credited with shifting travel writing into this more personal account over um, scientific documentation. So she's really, really important historical figure who is shunned really for being herself. So I would love for you to just talk a little bit about that as well.
1: can definitely do that. (laughs) Um, So Mary Wollstonecraft um, grew up in in England and she initially became known as a feminist philosopher. So she published in the 1780s um, this book called A Vindication of the Rights of Women Um, and it's a long book. Essentially, arguing that men and women should have the same rights, um, and of course, back in the 18th century, they really don't have the same rights. I mean, women can't earn all kinds of livings. It, um, generally, women are educated to a much younger age than men are. Like, you know, women can't own property unless they're widowed. It, like, there's a whole. in it, it, society was very different back then. And and she's arguing that, you know, women should be able to own property and have whatever jobs they like, that they should even be able to participate in government, which was really radical at the time. So she becomes known as this feminist philosopher, which already is really unusual for a woman to be publishing philosophy. um, But it's kind of tolerated, actually. The reviews of her book are fairly positive. um, People take it okay. A few years later, she goes abroad to Scandinavia, travels around Sweden, Norway and Denmark. And while she's there, she writes a travel book about it. Again, this was really, really unusual for a woman to do. So there had been a few travel books published by women before the 18th century, but not many. So one study estimates that there were maybe 20 published in Europe. before before 1800 which is just teeny tiny and so it was a really unusual thing that she was doing but again it was received fairly positively and she was called masculine repeatedly in the book reviews but they kind of liked the two books and then what happens after she dies is that her husband published some memoirs about her that reveal details of her life that were really shocking to, to um, sort of 18th century Europe. So it revealed the fact that she hadn't actually been married to her first husband, there had been some suicide attempts and, and then suddenly she's just vilified by the press. Um, there are magazine articles written about her that she becomes Her character is used in novels and poetry and she's held up as this cautionary tale really explicitly. This is what happens when a woman becomes too masculine and and, I mean people literally say that. (laughs) They accuse her of um, of being unsexed, of not being a woman, um, of lacking feminine instincts Um, and you get the really strong impression that Um, People think she just did one male thing too many. Maybe if she'd stuck to just doing philosophy or just doing travel, she would have gotten away with it. But the fact that she did both, people just couldn't hold back. (laughs) And and they argue, you know, because of these masculine characteristics, this is what led to her ruin, (laughs) Um, This is why um, we're all entitled uh, to really hate Mary Wollstonecraft. And and what's astonishing is that this continues right up until the 20th century. Um, I actually recently read a book review published in 1970, (laughs) where um, they describe her as being like silly and meddlesome. and I mean, it's really vitriolic, um, the sort of hatred that's poured on top of her. And so... When it comes to women travelers after Wollstonecraft, what you find is um, almost none of them are interested in feminist issues. And in fact, a strong subset of them, including people like Kingsley and Bird and Gertrude Bell, um, are actively anti-suffragist. So in the late 19th century, you have all these movements going on where people are saying, you know, maybe women really should have the vote now. (laughs) Maybe that would be a useful thing. Um, And you have these female explorers who you would imagine to be Kind of strong, powerful, progressive figures who are actively using their platform to reject um women having the vote it, uh, you know there there's this wonderful line from um from one of them who says uh, I absolutely don't think women should have the vote um I wouldn't use it if I have one. I should be terribly bored of the whole thing <laughs> thank gosh and yeah, um, so the question is why is it that these otherwise powerful women are so anti-feminist. And one explanation is that the suffragettes were seen as being really masculine for wanting to engage in politics. So in exactly the same way that women travelers and women philosophers are described as masculine, so that the suffragettes, and just like the women travelers, the suffragettes tried to counter that by wearing really delicate feminine clothing. (laughs) You know, they're trying to stress, no, we really are women, (laughs) despite the fact that we're trying to engage in politics. And, And so you might think these Victorian women explorers were worried um, they it's one thing to travel but it would be another thing to do politics as well and um, that we just shouldn't do more than one male thing and, and I think that the cautionary tale of Wollstonecraft is very much playing in the background here um, because the vilification of Wollstonecraft just went on for decades. I mean, right through the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries, and I think these women travellers were really conscious of of just not doing what she did. It's fine that they're travelling, but they don't want to do feminist philosophy or politics as well. They just want to leave it be.
0: So interesting, and I I think too of just some interviews I've even heard recently with women who are. Uh, for me, I idolize them as explorers and um, one woman, uh, Kelly Edwards, I remember her telling a story of showing up to, she's a pilot and showing up to pick up her airplane, you know, in some rural, you know, middle of nowhere, maybe in Africa, let's say, and the people there saying like, well, we'll just wait until your pilot gets here. Yes, that's fine. And and of course her name also happens to be Kelly, right? So the confusion could overlap and, she, you know, I am the pilot and if you see her, she's very feminine. And um, it, it's the same, almost the same response, right? Like that just can't possibly be you because you're a woman and you're feminine and you couldn't possibly be flying this plane from, you know, here to there by yourself. And Um, you would think that we would have dropped that narrative by now. And it's just so interesting how it's almost as strong as ever. And I was even thinking about when I travel that one of the things I really do to ensure I'm safe is to like be less feminine, right? I I wear long slacks. I cover my skin. I might pull my hair back and wear a hat And, and like, I mean, contrary to they were like making sure they were very feminine, so they weren't deemed masculine. You know, we kind of are still fitting into that mold to be an explorer and to be showing up in the world this way. And so, um, I think that's part of why I was so rattled by this article is because I would I would like to think that this history is in the past, <laughs> and yet it's it's lingering here. <laughs> and and is again is kind of the the premise of this of this platform and this conversation and this space to maybe kind of honor i feel like my next book tote needs to be like <laughs> you know uh, Wollstonecraft is like my hero or something like i want to honor and celebrate this path that she forged and to kind of break down this cautionary tale like we can be women and we can be travelers and we can be like leading the way and um so yeah i I just
1: the the happy ending of Wollstonecraft now i guess is that by the mid-20th century her reputation was rehabilitated so people really began to see oh no she really was very important for feminism yeah and, and now um as you said uh, there are various bits of research showing how it hurt. she was really one of the pioneers of this new style of travel writing writing in the first person making it personal um, so that's good i think people um people are coming to see um how what an important figure she was
0: yeah i i i, I love that i mean i just i just had this pit in my stomach for her for a moment of like how how much she did and that she didn't get to see the um the benefit of what she created for so many people
1: that's true yeah like yes me actually i think she'd be very pleased to know things like now women do have the vote (laughs) Uh, you know there are women on the supreme court (laughs) yeah Yeah. i think she'd be really heartwarming heart Heartwarmed yeah. by those things well, yes
0: while we're still trying you know we're still seeing those gaps like the things that have been have come together since her time she would definitely be very proud of so
1: yeah i think so too it's not that everything's fixed but we've made a <laughs> yeah. lot of progress <laughs>
0: um well i i think i mean i would love to dive more into the book but i i think we've we've really talked about some things that for me were really important to bring into this conversation and to bring awareness to. And so while I mentioned that I would, would, I know love to have you back to talk about (laughs) everything else that we've missed. One is just for people who I know are going to be interested in um, more about your work, um, where can they find, I know your book is available both in book form and on um, in Audible, but if they want to learn more about that and if you want to um, share where your article is going to be published, um, I would love to give you the space to do that.
1: Happily. The, the book, The Meaning of Travel is definitely the thing to read if you want to know more about the relationship between philosophy and travel. Yeah, so there's a chapter in there about how Uh, travel is a gendered thing and the various problems that that's caused. But this specific article on Mary Wollstonecraft is coming out in history today. I don't yet have a publication date, but but I hope it won't be too far in the future. That's
0: great. And I I will definitely share that, um, even if it's after this um, episode is shared Um, so just to end the rapid fire questions are just for my listeners to get a little bit of a better sense of you which we didn't really get to i mean we got to really understand your work in this way but you as a traveler didn't we didn't get there as much which again that's where i would love to bring you back for another conversation Um, But what is your favorite book or movie that offers you a travel escape or inspires you to
1: travel? You know, actually, one of the very early books I read that I found really inspirational um, was Paul Theroux's um, The Great Railway Bazaar. I absolutely loved that.
0: Um, What is always in your suitcase or your backpack? when you travel.
1: I'm one of the plastic bag backpackers who thinks that it's really useful if everything in a suitcase is packed in individual plastic bags. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure how useful it really is (laughs) when it comes to packing. I'm, I'm really one of those people. Yeah, other than that, it's just the regular boring stuff, clothes and shampoo. Yeah,
0: perhaps one monsoon too many. I've had that experience of unpacking
1: A lot of books, actually. So back in the days before Kindles, um, I would always have maybe three or four books to swap at backpacker shelves. I'm a fast reader, so I have to have a lot of books to keep me going on train journeys.
0: I I relate. (laughs) Um, What has been your favorite destination?
1: Antarctica, for sure, actually. It's really, for me, it was like being on the surface of another planet. And I'd read Sarah Wheeler's Terra Incognita before I visited. Um, so I think I visited with this whole awareness of the, of the history and the, especially the science dimension to the continent. Um, the idea of preserving an entire landmass for science, I think, really caught my imagination, in addition to just how strange it is as a place. It's definitely been, yeah, the the most spectacular place I've been, I think.
0: Uh, Where do you still long to visit?
1: So many places. (laughs) The lockdown is really sad, (laughs) frankly. And I've been to, I think, seven or eight countries in Africa, but there's like 60 more. (laughs) I'd like to see a lot more of that continent. I'd also like to see more of the Middle East. Frankly, it it can be really beautiful, um, as well as the fascinating history. And I'd like to see, yeah, a lot more of that. And I hope that the virus will allow us to do that in the not too distant future. I
0: I agree, and I also agree on both those destinations. Like I've just had some of my most magical experiences both in the Middle East and in Africa. So, yes, I I concur. What do you eat that immediately connects you to a place you've been?
1: Actually, um, that's a really good question. Do you know, I feel like a lot of the things I've eaten when I've been traveling would be impossible to recreate. Like, I'm not really sure what's been in them. It's been (laughs) strange bowls of stew with things bobbing, and you just hope for the best. (laughs) I think Asian cuisine is always very distinctive and what I really miss is Indian vegetarian food Um, I found it in the UK it's really hard to get good Indian vegetarian food it actually it, yeah there's one vegetarian dish on the menu and it's just not the same you really got to go to like parts of London which have the specialist restaurant
0: um who and this is a good question for you who was the person that inspired or encouraged you to set out and explore the world
1: <laughs> that is good um, Actually, books, I think. (laughs) Just a little bit of a sad answer, perhaps. um, uh, Yeah, reading lots of books about travel um, really gave me a thirst for it. And then as soon as you do some, you realize, ah, this is really doable. I can do more. And then the addiction begins.
0: Yeah, I love making travel achievable for as many people as possible. So, yes, I think I agree. It takes one step and then you realize that you really can do it.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, If you could take an adventure, again, a great one for you, with one person, fictional or real, alive or past, who would it be?
1: I think I would pick someone who would be entertaining. Someone like Montaigne, actually. He's a philosopher, he's profound, but he's also very funny. Um, His essays are brilliant um, and they're insightful and thoughtful. I think he'd be a good travelling companion.
0: Well, thank you so much. I have just enjoyed so much um, the experience of getting to know you through preparing to speak to you, Um, having this conversation and um, sharing your work. I feel like so many people will be inspired to read your book and to kind of just think about things in a different way um, and to know that, philosophy and travel really are available to everyone and so i appreciate you creating the space for that awareness to happen and for being here to share this with all of my listeners
1: thank you it's been a pleasure to be here
0: thank you for listening to soul of travel i hope you enjoyed the journey if this sounds like your community welcome I'm so happy to connect with you. You can find more about the ways you can be a part of the Soul of Travel and Lotus Sojourn community at www.lotussojourns.com. Here, you can find out more about Soul of Travel and my guests. You can also find the Lotus Sojourns I Guide for Women, as well as my current book, Sojourn, offering an opportunity to explore your heart, mind, and the world, through the pages of books specially selected to create a unique journey you can find me on facebook at lotus sojourns and join our community the lotus sojourns collective or follow me on instagram either at lotus sojourns or soul of travel podcast join the lotus sojourns mailing list i look forward to getting to know you and hopefully hear your story